Hey guys, this is Robert Breedlove from the What Is Money Show. And as you've learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to facilitate financial security for all. They accomplish this by bringing a high level of professionalization and sophistication to the Bitcoin marketplace. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. By using Nidig, you will gain access to an end-to-end institutional-grade platform, providing Bitcoin OTC transactions, Bitcoin collateralized borrowing, secure custody, asset management, derivatives, financing, market research, and more. And all of these services meet the highest regulatory governance and audit standards. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and is leading the way for ongoing institutional adoption in this nascent asset class. So please be sure to check out Nidig as a single source for all your Bitcoin needs. Yeah, I, I, I like the way you're making connections between value and relevance. Mm-hmm. Uh, think about I like your proposal. I would put it in this language and you might not, you know, well, tell me if it lands. You're, uh, you're, you're proposing value as the rel- as relevance to distributed cognition, right? Uh, um, so I'm getting this from the Austrian School of Economics. They would say that each individual person has a rank ordered set of actions in mind. That's, that's relevance. Yeah. And yeah. whatever action you're taking in that moment is you is, is action indeed is the only way we can express value, right? It's like, we're, oh, we're doing the thing yeah. most valuable to us in the moment. And then the, the distributed cognition piece would be all humans taking action in the world, giving relevance, or salience to certain things, right? Demand, we call this economic demand. Yeah. That overlaid on the actual supply of capital in the world creates the price. Right. So then the price becomes this data point of relevance or salience to individual market actors, right? If I see the, I don't need to know there was an earthquake in Chile that disrupted copper production. All I need to know is that the price of copper went up. So, ah, so it's, if, it's an information compression. Uh, yes, exactly. Right. So if I'm a right. seller, if I know, oh, the price of copper went up, I want to sell more copper. If I'm a buyer, I want to buy less. And that's how the market problem solves. The distributed cognition system solves the copper shortage through the price signal. So, so well, we can get, let's get into that at some point because then I would want to, right? So I, what you said earlier, I, I think I uh, did the wrong word. You basically understood money. You you had this definition of money as uh, 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 as a particular function mm-hmm. within distributed cognition. Um, yeah, it, it's and, propagating that price signal. So it's it's, right. it's 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 you know people are expressing their subjective value hierarchies. Again, subjective. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Each yeah, person yeah. kind of decides for themselves what their va- their value system is. And then all, that collective action is compressed into the price, which is an objective metric that pretty much signals to everyone else what people right. are demanding in the world relative to what's available. So what I would say from an information processing view is that, right, so uh, price is 
a very powerful data compression. And what data compression does is allow you to generalize and predict. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why we general. That's generalization, the goal of science. We try to find the invariant features of the environment. Yes. The problem with data compression is it's it's information lossy. So as, as the more and more you compress, the more and more you you lose the ability. So the more and more you compress, the more and more you emphasize sameness, and you lose the ability to track relevant differences. So right. The more and more right. you're going to be surprised by novelty. And by un- unforeseen things, and so you're gonna get it's gonna get more and more disastrous for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, novelty is gonna be more expensive. I'm <laughs> sorry, I'm trying to not use financial terms. It's gonna be more costly to you. It's gonna be yes. more costly to you. Uh, so that's interesting. I don't know if that shows up in the models anywhere. Uh, that idea that so in science, one of the things like you're 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 always caught, right? Like, let me give you an example. So. Uh, I want to try and predict the environment. The environment is too bloody complex, called their 12th explosion. So what I do is I isolate a couple of variables in the lab. I control mm-hmm. for all the other variables and I manipulate them. And then I try to find the invariant principles. I do. Uh, I try to get this unit variant measure, mm-hmm. like this huge compression, you know, force equals mass times acceleration. Yes. And then, and I think, well, that's always the case. And then of course, Einstein comes along and says, well, you know, mm-hmm. actually no. Right, only within this zone of approximation, you've overgeneralized, and, and then you have to have this huge revolution in science. To, yes, that's what, that's what I'm alluding to. So when you when you compress too much, right, that's good as long as the environment is stable. But as scientific revolutions show, the environment will not never be permanently stable, and things have to go through a radical sudden shift. Right. Interesting. So that there's this this is. Um a book called the philosophy of money I've been reading. And he, he kind of makes that point that we, and this may get into psychotechnology a bit, is it by virtue of compressing most of our relationship relationships into this quantifiable number, right? Like labor developed a price, all the things that we lost, we sacrifice qualitative distinction for yes. quantitative yes. distinction. Yes. Yes, exactly. So, yeah. I, I wonder if that's uh, Heath, one of my colleagues at the university of Toronto, uh, He's he, he's done some really good stuff, um, Joseph Heath. Um, yeah, I mean that that that's exactly it. <clears throat> so if I, I can make the prediction, there's stuff near me, and that's going to get really confirmed. <laughs> that's always right? the case, right? <laughs> yeah. Wow, what a great prediction, but it's kind of yeah. useless yeah. because I want to know what kind of stuff right is near me, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and 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 that. So that's again, that's the you're you you're all you're always in a generalization discrimination trade-off, right? You're yes. always in those, and there is no final solution to that. Right. There is no no like it's it's gonna always shift around. And 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 to go back to a point I wanted to make, and this why is why I want to emphasize its transjectivity. Remember the great white shark, its adaptivity is dependent not just on it, but on the environment. And another mm-hmm. criticism that is made of classical economics is it has human cognition disembedded from its biological environmental context mm-hmm. in a fundamental mm-hmm. manner. And so that's why, to get back to rationality, like there's been two huge moves. One, the first rationality debate was to get us out of that computational model that we could calculate everything right. in order to be the clockwork universe. Yeah and, yeah, and 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 right, right, very much like Newton. Yeah. And we got people like Newell and Simon saying, "No, no, rationality is always bounded. 
It's bounded by relevance realization. Right. 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 Now we're currently in the second rationality debate, which is right bringing in much more of the biological aspect that you and I've been talking about, which is to say, yes, Newell and Simon were right. Simon, especially, and Kahneman is you know developed from Simon, etc. Right. And Stanovich and all these people, and they're all brilliant, by the way. I teach them. Um, but th they still are working within a, a Cartesian model, uh, that model that cognition is in your head and it's largely an individual affair mm. in your head, mm. right? And, and that that is, and what what the current uh, view is, it's not only are we, uh, it's not only bounded rationality, it's ecologically bounded rationality. And so what human beings, right, you have to see everything they're doing as not only avoiding combinatorial explosion, but trying to enhance, remember the paramecium? They're trying mm -hmm. to enhance their cognitive and ultimately biological fittedness to their world. Mm -hmm. So I would say, right, ultimately, that's what, we, what we're talking about when we're talking about human beings as seeking meaning. Oh, okay. Seeking meaning. Okay. So let me ask you, all right, um, Go ahead. Go so ahead. rationality is bounded, yeah. uh, bounded. So let's, let's distinguish between the two bounded versus ecologically bounded. What is the difference yeah. there? So bounded is the idea that, um, well, let, so let, well, let's do the three way contrast. So classical rationality, Cartesian, and that shows up in classical economics is you're a computer and if you just compute you can compute the universe mm, which okay. is now uh, given what, everything we've said about the yeah. frame problem and that's like that's quantum just, no. quantum mechanics destroys that completely yeah. quantum mechanics yeah. even in, even if we were living in and we're not and yeah. we're not right even if we were living in a classical classical physical we would still face combinatorial explosion. right like you said about the chessboard earlier that alone yeah, yeah. has more yeah. yes okay yeah. yep yep Okay, so all of that, and, and that's right out of Newell and Simon. That's right out of Simon's work and Kahneman, right? Stanovich understands general intelligence as the capacity to deal with computational limitations, do, to deal with combinatorial explosions, mm -hmm. to do relevant realization, et cetera. So, right, so you move off of, you know, sort of perfect calculation uh, is what, let, let me give any, let me, let me be really clear about this because an algorithm is a problem-solving method that is guaranteed to find a solution, mm -hmm. and it works according to a standard of certainty. So there's an algorithm for multiplying three times 12. You know how to do it, and if you do it properly, it is guaranteed to give you the absolute correct answer, mm -hmm. okay? And so there are contexts in which we can use algorithms. But remember, most, most problems are combinatorially explosive and ill-defined. And so if I tried to solve them algorithmically, I would have to search almost all of the space and resolve all of the uncertainty. Mm, mm -hmm. Can't do it. Right. Logic and math are algorithmic. Right. If you think, if you say to be rational is to be logical, and that the goal of rationality is to be logical at all times in all ways, like Mr. Spock or Mr. Data, you have just committed cognitive suicide. Mm. You have just because I will give you one problem, get out of bed, and then you will have to calculate logically right. all uh and then that's it you're done you're finished yeah. it's yeah. suicide. so log rationality doesn't equal logic we've already said it doesn't equal intelligence because rationality is about overcoming the self-deception 
that your intelligence generates. Right. So bounded rationality is to give up the idea that rationality is logic. Bounded rationality is giving up the equivalence between logic and rationality. Right. So think okay. about right. So think about classical economics. You know more about it than I do, but you have you know you have the rational actor, and what they will do is they will calculate you know all yes, the probabilities yes. and facilities yeah. and blah, Homo blah, blah, economicus. Blah. I think they call him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, like, bounded rationality says you can't do that except for a vanishingly small set of real world problems. Got it. That's yeah. bounded rationality. Is that is yes? That, yes. Now, the, and that is like really, really important. And so what, com, what cognitive science did was move us away from classical, right? Rationality to bounded rationality. Right. The cognitive science has moved on again and said, yeah, but what is this relevance realization? Like, let's use the language we're using today. Well, are things just relevant to any, any kind of being? Are things yeah. relevant yeah. to this? Things are only relevant to an auto-poetic thing. You right. only care about this information rather than that information because you are an auto-poetic thing. You are a biological thing. Yes. And biological things are ecologically dependent yes. entities. So it's not just bounded rationality. It's ecologically embedded. Got it. Okay. okay. So the then the rationality itself is... In each one of these revolutions you're describing, it's being applied to a smaller sample almost, right? Instead yeah. of the rational, like rationalizing yeah. the entire universe, you're really just rationalizing this tiny bit of salience that occurs to you uh, based on these other factors. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, you do work at multiple temporal scales. And mm -hmm. one of the things you do, one of the things you gain, and this is really important. This is really important. One of the things you gain by participating in distributed cognition is you gain access to cognition that can work at different temporal spatial scales than you can. Mm -hmm. You, you, it is physically impossible for you to run an airline. Right. You can't do it. Right. Right. Yes. You'd have to be in all these places at the, like, you can't do yeah. it, but you participate in distributed cognition and that uh, gives you, uh, that, that creates a, a, a cognitive system that can handle things that are beyond our individual scale, our individual optimal grip on the world. Gotcha. And does this then get into the, the temporal extension of ourselves where it's like, yeah. you're not just yourself, you're slices of yourself across time. Yes. Um, yes. And yeah. then, because that, that way connects deeply and weighs heavily on the concept of in, there's a concept in Austrian economics called time preference. Mm. So the more, the more of, the more slices of your future self you consider with any decision, right? The more long-term oriented you are, that means they say you have a lower time preference versus if you're yeah. only thinking about your next meal or whatever, you're very high time preference. And, okay, the, and the, back to interest where you said earlier, yeah. it's inter-essay, yeah. the, in, the natural interest rate, which is the price of money actually in the marketplace, this is a reflection of the collective time preference oh, of civilization. Wow. You should be writing this down. The way you're the way you're mapping out the cognitive, what I would call, or I think properly, the yeah. cognitive function of these economic functions. You're, you're doing kind, of, and I don't. I mean this as a compliment. You're doing sort of the reverse of me. 
I'm trying to take these <laughs> functions. No, I'm trying to yeah. take these cognitive functions and ma map them into bioeconomic functions. Yes. And then you're trying to see the economic functions as the the cognitive functions of distributed cognition. I think yeah. that's brilliant. Yeah. Well, you but, so you hit, you hit on something earlier where it's um, the the well defined problem, right? Which is more like Euclidean type geometry yeah. where we have an axiom and we we deduce. Yeah. But the real world is more like fractal geometry, right? Where it's ill-defined. And um, so I think that the the real world is actually fractal mostly. It's like the geometry of nature. So these things we're describing, you're, you're describing consciousness as it occurs here, maybe. I think there's another fractal layer to it that is the market or economics as, as we're talking about. It's very much hypothesis. I mean, I might be tripping all over the place, but. I want to put my finger on two things. Uh, uh, both have to do with one is um, the issue you're talking about uh, with time. This is in cognitive science. This is temporal discounting. Mm -hmm, and, yes. And, 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 and notice what it involves. It involves salience. Right. Right. So what you do, right? The idea is the more the the more the more in the present tense the stimulus is, the more salient it is to you. And the more distant it is in the future, the less salient it is. To you. Right. And that right. is across species, by the way. This mm -hmm. is not bound to cultural entities or, or right. You, you can like across species, you see temporal discounting. It's a deeply adaptive form of relevance realization. Mm -hmm. It's very mm -hmm. adaptive. But let, let me let me try and give you like, I, I, I want to use this concrete example about the things that make us adaptive, make us self-deceptive. Mm -hmm. OK, so OK. So why is it adaptive? Well, like if I'm right here, the probability of the next event is very high, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But right, like say I I can make a choice and I can maybe make it go one way or the other, right? right so there's a 50-50 right. chance. But if I get there, then also 50-50. And notice what's happening. It's branching out, and as it's branching out, the chance of each one of these events occurring is going. I'm just using a symmetric exponentially smaller, like a coin flip, right? right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Choice exactly. of flipping heads once versus ten times in a row. So right. And notice that if you didn't salience discount, notice what would happen to you. You're going to get out of bed and you think, well, I might trip. And if I trip, I might twist my ankle. And if I twist my ankle, I, I, I might get to class a little bit later. And then that might mean I'll fail this course. And then if I fail this course, my friends might abandon me and that might cause me to fail other courses. And then I'll end up alone, alone, alone. Right. And so Generalized anxiety, one hypothesis I have, people suffer generalized, uh, generalized anxiety because they're insufficiently doing temporal discounting. Oh, this is uh, However, an analysis paralysis. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Rumination, rumination, yeah. Uh, unlimited rumination, yeah. right? Now, so it's deeply adaptive because you should only direct attention to the degree to which the event is probable. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If it gets further and further into the future, its probability is going down exponentially. Right. But notice this. Let's do a concrete example. I don't smoke, but let's suppose I smoke. I'm facing a decision here. Do I smoke another cigarette? Well, if I smoke another cigarette, chances are I'm going to smoke more. And it, it's, it could lead down to this pathway where I die in Toronto. I'm a Canadian, right? Of cancer in my left lung. Here's another pathway that I die in Toronto of cancer in my right lung. I die in Hamilton in my left lung, right lung, mm -hmm. Burlington. I die of emphysema. Like, here's all these different deaths. Each one, each death has a low probability. But you know, there's something about me. I don't want to, uh, I don't want to avoid a particular death. 
I want to avoid death. I want to avoid, and this, and I mean this seriously, I want to avoid death in the abstract. I want to avoid the common property of all these low probability events. Yes. And that common property is highly probable. Right. So by adaptively blinding me to each one of these low probability events, it also blinds me to what they abstractly have in common. And that is why people smoke to death or why I eat the chocolate cake, even though it's going to make me obese right. or why I don't study for the exam until too late because I'm procrastinating. And this is, this has to be related to, I hope I'm saying the term right, the reciprocal narrowing of the world yeah. where you yeah. take one step yeah. down the path, your options contract, yeah. then it reinforces your original behavior. And this, this is the nature of addiction, actually. Yes, very much, very much. Did you see how what I just did, though? Notice that temporal discounting is how you are intelligent. It yes. makes you adaptive. But right. by the very same token, it makes you subject to self-destructive behavior. Yes. People don't save for their retirement. Right. Because they don't, they don't properly care for their future self. Now notice what you had to do. You have, you have a, you need an ability that will abstract common properties and bring them into the present for you. Yes. That's rationality. Right. Wow. That's right. There's so my head's blowing up right now. Um, that's very interesting. Um, so let's okay. Let's try to get back on this path of definition. I want to come back to the distributed cognition, though. Please, uh, if you, if something strikes you now, please let's go with it. Okay, so you talk, we were talking about that. We we're talking about access to distributed cognition, and you were basically presenting markets as dynamical systems of distributed cognition that do. That, uh, that realize emergent collective intelligence for solving problems that are beyond the scope of individual cognition. That's yes. what I've been hearing you say. Well said, you, you, yes. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Well, it's your idea. I'm just, I'm just trying to get back. <laughs> right? and, it's and, not and my I think idea. That, well, <laughs> anyway, that's yeah. what you're saying. I yeah, want to make yeah. sure I'm understanding. Okay, so I, I've been studying with my good friend, uh, Dan Chiappi, uh, a, a, a more limited case of distributed cognition. And I want to get back to uh, the, the point we're making. We're, we're, we published one paper and we have two more that are going to be published. We're studying how um, the scientists in NASA moved the rovers around on Mars in mm -hmm. order to, in order to, um, in order to, well, do the science on Mars, mm -hmm. right? And right away, it's distributed cognition because it takes multiple people to do this. So, right. And what's really interesting is um, some of the things they do, some of the things, the way they create meaning in order to organize the distributed cognition so that they can carry out the science on Mars. And, and I want to introduce this because I want to introduce kinds of knowing and within distributed cognition and within individual cognition so that we can talk about wisdom and mm -hmm. its relationship. Perfect. That's okay. Yes. Okay. So, the, so the problem is the, the the problem is you don't have joystick control over the rovers because they're too far away. The, 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 there's too much time delay, mm. and also you don't have that much uh, computational power on the rovers. So you, like you can't send back that. So what the scientists get are they get time delayed black and white two dimensional photos back, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what they have to do is they have to figure out how to do science on Mars from these two dimensional photos 
And any of any action instructions they send and any feedback is delayed, temporally mm -hmm. delayed. Right? Okay. Okay. And so what's what really what what Dan got really interested in and what drew me in with and you know, he's a good friend of mine, is the scientists, they look for people who get this really unique ability. And, and this is so flexing to me. And, and get, get, I know this is off topic for a bit, but it's about distributed cognition. It's about meaning making and, and, and all the stuff we're talking about. So just give me, give me a little bit of rope here. Um, so what they do is they look for people who get a sense of being on Mars and of being the rover. Hmm. It's called a sense of presence. Now, luckily, hmm. I have something I can point to so people can know what I'm talking about. Many people are familiar with the virtual world, virtual, let's say a video game as an yes. example. One of the things that video game creators look for, and there's increasing literature about this, is a sense of presence. That's mm -hmm. the sense of really being in the game, yes. right? You're really there. You're really yeah. there then, yeah. right? It's right. Okay. So re remember that, that sense of presence, because that's a different sense of realness than a believing that a belief is true. Right. 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 And so when, and so, how the heck do they take still flat black and white photos and get this sense of presence, right? And so, well, they do a couple of really interesting behaviors. One is they take the photos and then they, they salience landscape them. They mark them up with colored markers and to, to redirect their attention and to reprioritize. And so Vertesi, who did some of the great work on it, she calls it drawing as. They're draw they're drawing on the images and they're trying to draw out, mm. right? They're trying to shift their salience landscape so they can see into the pictures. Mm. Intelligence literally meant originally interleisure to read between the lines, mm. right? You're, you're, right to make yourself see into interleisure. Okay. Is that what it meant? Yeah, to to read between the lines. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, very cool. And so you're doing this, and then but. But it, remember what we talked about, it's always in, in embodied and active, but they, they do, they do this weird other thing. They'll do, they'll, they, first of all, they anthropomorphize the rover. They won't mm. say the rover needs to go there. They'll say, we need to go there. Right. We need to raise up. We need to raise our arm. Right. Yes. We need to, right. So they'll do that. They anthropomorphize the rover, but they also technomorphize themselves. So ah, you'll, okay. you'll, you'll see, you'll see this. Uh, a scientist, like she'll, she'll, she'll take her phone. She's on a swivel chair. Yeah. And she'll say, okay, this is the rock. And she, and she does this. And I, <laughs> I, I need to turn like this, right? In order, right? Yeah. And they enact it. They wow. do all this imaginal and see how they're assigning identities and assuming identities uh -huh. so that they can shape the rover to them yes. and shape themselves to the rover. Right, 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 right. right. So they get, and that identification process goes deep into them. They, we've got quotes of them saying things like this. They'll go, you know, I was at home and I was in the garden and my right wrist kept getting caught in the garden. And when I came to the lab, spirit, uh, no pun intended, spirit's right wheel kept getting stuck in the sand. I don't know. I'm not <laughs> saying there's magic, but you know, <laughs> ha, ha, ha. They say stuff like that, right? They, yeah. they get this weird sympathetic identification going wow. on. Wow. Right. And, and this is how they are making meaning and they're right. doing it individually and collectively. And that meaning helps coordinate their salient, their individual salience landscape, their collective salience landscape. 
And they form this system of all of the scientists and the rover. And that whole system is what's studying Mars. It's a distributed mission. Now, I wanted to bring that up because, first of all, you can see all the salience landscaping, you can see Mm -hmm. consciousness, you can see intelligence, you can see the process of identification because it allows me to talk about the four kinds of knowing, not allow me to talk about wisdom. Okay. Okay. So what the scientists want to do is they want to generate theories about Mars. That's propositional knowing. Yeah. That's what proposition are, you know, statements that can be true or false. And we judge them for being true or false. And we have a specific kind of memory for it. It's called semantic memory. It's where you store your knowledge of facts, which are propositions you judge to be true. These are most generalizable, typically? No, they don't have to be. You can have specific propositions. You can have the proposition that, you know, John Dravicki is a cognitive scientist. That's a Mm. a proposition. Got it. Right? Now, what a scientist is after is the most generalizable proposition. Got it. That's what the question Yep. Yes. So they're trying to come up with the most generalizable propositions about Mars. Mm-hmm. That's propositional knowing. That's knowing that something is the case by having beliefs that, right, and, mm-hmm. and stored in semantic memory. And we, ha- we get a sense of conviction if it's true or false. Okay. Now, the problem that we're facing as a culture is we, we have, since Descartes, we think that that's all of what knowing is. Yes. That's all of what cognitive right. is. That's the computational right, right. model. But notice we've already said how limited that is. Notice that the scientists not only, but in order to do that, they have to have the right skills. They have to develop skills of, right? They have to develop skills of how to move the rover around Mm -hmm. and skills of how to draw on the picture and skills of how to act certain ways. This, right? So this is called procedural knowing. This is knowing how to do something. Right. And so skills aren't true or false. Like, do you have, can you swim? Yes. Is the skill, not my claim about your skill, mm. but is the skill of swimming true or false? Uh, make, I don't know. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, yeah. It, doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Because we don't judge skills by truth or falsity. We just we judge them by in terms of how powerful they are. Oh, okay. How, how much they are. So notice we have different ways of thinking about realness. Right. The, the truth of our proposition, the power of our skills. But we talked about consciousness. And remember what, what are the scientists also need? They need a sense of being on Mars, that sense of presence. Yes. They need to be right salience landscaping, right? Yeah. That's perspectival knowing. That's okay. the knowing okay. that what it, what it's like to be here now in this state of consciousness. Right. So is that related then to empathy or um yes um well i forget the other term you use where you just i guess to attempt to look through the eyes of someone else a metacognition perhaps is the term meta perspectival ability right okay yeah right so you can take my perspective i can take your perspective so you know and you know what it would be like to be present as me here now Mm -hmm. right right yeah i remember that because in the wisdom consensus paper, I was a co-author on it with a whole bunch of other people led by Igor Grossman yeah. that we published uh, in 2019. One of the defining features of wisdom is the meta perspectival ability. Interesting. That's also, I, just to yeah. again, ahead. tie this back to markets a little bit. That is also very important when it comes to game theory, where yeah. it's you're making decisions based on the anticipated beliefs and actions of others, right? You're constantly just like, the chessboard. You're trying to think more steps yeah. ahead of the other person. 
and there's trade-off relationships, right? No. Because the, re the research from the psychological perspective shows as you move up any status hierarchy mm -hmm. due to your success, your meta-perspectival ability gets truncated, mm. gets reduced. Interesting. Why? What? Yeah, why? Why? Because you can more and more make other people conform to your perspective. Ah, you, oh, you, you're more influential on those around you in a way. Yes. Ah, interesting. You pay a price for that. You pay a wow. price for that. So if you think about money also as power and influence, yes. there's a cost to it in terms of the degree to which it lifts you up through success. It also reduces your perspectival ability and, and people very high up. This can get like really, really like, you know, I don't know if you've read of some of the experiments where you get. Like yeah, um, uh, you know, uh, significant corporate managers like yes. they have to put a card on their head, and they have to say, "How would somebody? How does somebody else see that card?" And they only describe it from their perspective. They don't like it's all. It's almost like a four-year-old, right? Yeah, yeah, because, yeah. Because right, they 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 have truncated the perspectival knowing because again, because mm -hmm. their own perspective has become so so successful. Yes, right. They have overgeneralized it. They have lost the ability to pick up on different perspectives. I, I'm, I'm intuiting a connection here. I don't know if it's correct now, but so to climb that socioeconomic hierarchy towards success, clearly you have to exhibit great adaptivity, but it sounds yeah. like you're running a higher risk of self-deception as well, which gets yes. back to your earlier yeah. point of yeah. the same machinery yeah. that drives adaptivity can also drive self-deception. Exactly. I'm glad you see that. That exact that's exactly the argument I'm making. No. That's exactly the argument. This is a pervasive feature. So Perfect. that perspectival knowing its sense of realness is that sense of presence. Mm -hmm. And then the deepest, the most primordial one, the right, the one that right we, we we've been alluding to here all throughout this is participatory knowing. This mm. is knowing that comes from the, in which your knowing of the other and the knowing of yourself are inseparably bound together. It's, it's where you're assigning and assuming identities and the environment and you are co-shaping each other so that you belong and fit together. Mm. So participatory knowing, it's, it's kind of like knowing by my being, by my body, by the very shape of my, of my mind and my body. So because mm -hmm. of the being that I am, and because culture has shaped this, there's an affordance between me and it. Mm -hmm. Participatory knowing generates affordances. Okay. This is graspable okay. to me. Yes. Right? Right? And then perspectival knowing takes makes some of those affordances salient to you. And then, yep. oh. So the affordance is always there, right? And yes. then... I make it present to me and I actually grasp the cup. Right. Right. And, the, and in order to grasp the cup, so perspectival knowing gives me the situational awareness and then I trigger the right skills, the procedures. Yeah. And then that'll, and only when I can interact with the world can I then come to the proposition there is a bottle there. Ah, uh, the semantic. Yes. So the yes. semantic comes after the procedural. Right. We right. were we were acting yes. these things out way before we could abstract and talk about them. Of course. Of course. And yeah. that's what the other animals are doing. Yes. Right? So propositional has semantic memory. Procedural has what's called procedural memory. Mm -hmm. Perspectival knowing has what's called episodic memory. You mm. remember what it's like to be in a particular place and time in a particular state of mind, particular emotional state. That's episodic memory. 
What's the memory for participatory knowing? It's your sense of self. Ah, okay. Okay, now, here's the proposal. Each one of these is doing intelligence. It's trying to fit you to the world according to truth or power or presence or affordance. Yeah. Right? Yep, yep. So each one of these is subject to a, its own kind of self-deception. Oh, okay. Right? Okay. Now, yep. remember, you invoked it earlier. What's self-deception at the participatory level? That's reciprocal narrowing. So right. I take, this is Mark Lewis's work. I take yeah. the drink of alcohol because the world is so complex and it reduces the complexity of the world, but I pay for that. My cognitive flexibility is reduced. Yes. Now, because my cognitive flexibility is reduced, I can't solve problems. So now the world is like, I, I, I got to shrink the world even more rapidly. Yes. So I, I drink more alcohol to shrink it more down. And then that limits my cognitive flexibility right. and I narrow the world and we're reciprocally narrowing. Yeah. Yeah. Until I can't be any other than I am, and the world can't be any other than it is. And that's why I drink the alcohol. Addiction is, is self-deception at the participatory knowing level. Right, right, now, right. The thing to know is Plato talked about the, we, we, we have the exact opposite available to us. We can reciprocally open. Yes. Okay. So, so and then what is, what is the, the kind of self-deception? at the perspectival level. Mm -hmm. Well, you know what it is. We talked about it. It's when the wrong things are salient to you, mm -hmm. right? The procedural level, <clears throat> well, you know what that is. <clears throat> the procedural level is when you activate the wrong procedure. So my uncle suffered from this problem. I used to golf with him. Um, and he used to also play hockey during the winter. So every spring, his hockey swing would <laughs> malform his golf swing and then he would get that finally worked out and then by the end of the season his golf swing would interfere with his hockey right and That's so, so funny. right but we yeah. do that all the time yes right so this, this is the proverbial when everything when all you have is a hammer everything looks like right a nail right so we're, we're right we oh we oh we all right and then of course we know what 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 you know self-deception at the propositional level looks like uh it's where we do incorrect relevance realization like confirmation bias yes we, we only look for the information that confirms our belief we don't are these the all overfitting in a way some Is, of them can be underfitting uh, some of them uh, can be underfitting. Okay. Okay. so let, let's go back to perspectival knowing let's go back to you know the, the corporate leaders yeah. they become too egocentric right okay in, in a very powerful way and so they're failing to differentiate enough the, so they're losing cognitive acuity. They're uh, losing the, all the different perspectives available to them. Losing touch okay. with reality. So it's an underfit. Yes. Got it. Okay. Yeah. 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 They're, they're losing. They're losing discriminatory sensitivity because mm. yeah, right. Because mm. they're overgeneralizing. Got it. Everybody's yeah. like me. Everybody's like me. Right. 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 Okay. So each kind of knowing has self-deception. So for each kind of knowing, you need a different kind of rationality. Right, a different way of improving uh, and dealing with the self-deception, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then you need so you have multiple rationalities, multiple proportioning of your resources, and then you need something that coordinates all of those rationalities together so that they are optimally organized, kind of like an internal distributed cognition. Mm. That's wisdom. Wow. Okay, so wisdom is the 
thread across all of these levels of knowing, I guess yep. is what we call them. Okay. So it, it's improving your understanding within each kind of knowing yes. and, your under, and your understanding between all the kinds of knowing. Ah, uh, I see. I see. Okay. So that, and then we're back to that concept of consilience in a way, right? That you, yes. things yes. are, you're more likely to take the right action according to your aim. If you have uh, all of these layers are in alignment, I guess you might say. And um, yeah. I think another yeah. thing you, uh, you guys use this inside is multivariate analysis, right? Yes. Where you're getting multiple indications yeah. with different modes, then it's, you're more likely to be true. Which is my, my critique earlier of a univariate measure. Mm -hmm. Right, exactly, right, right. Exactly, yes. exactly, right. Yes. So think about this. Like, think about some, think about something uh, that's really dynamically complex, constantly changing, that's constantly giving you ill defined problems, but that you need to deeply understand um, another person, another person you want mm -hmm. to be in relationship with. Mm -hmm. So would you be happy? Um, if you're, if you only had beliefs about your beloved, wow, that's going to not be, that's going to be radically, you really understand them. Do you really understand them? No, right. you better have a bunch of skills available and cultivated specific for your interaction with that person. Yes. Right. Yes. yes. And then you better be able to be present to that person and, uh, and be able to take their perspective on you, on you, or you're doomed. Yes. And you know what? If you don't start identifying with them and knowing yourself through knowing them and allowing them to know themselves through you, you're not going to get the reciprocal opening that we call love. Uh, and you want all of those properly integrated together in order to deeply understand wow. another human being. So wisdom is a precursor to deep and meaningful love in a way. I, I, know, I know love has multiple meanings as well, but I guess yeah. we're talking about deep long-term romantic marriage type love this is this is one of plato's deepest insights yes that there is deep connection between wisdom and love properly understood yes wow that's so incredibly beautiful